Does anybody love spam emails? No? Okay, good. So there's no sociopaths among us. That's good. Uh, I, I hate spam emails. Uh, little known fact, I have a Gmail account with, I believe, over 3,000 unread messages. 99% of them are spam, right? You get to the point where there's just so much, it's like, I don't even know how to respond to this anymore. It's so much junk mail. So if you're like me and you loathe spam emails, uh, it might be easy to dislike a man by the name of Alan Rolski. Alan Rolski made a fortune by sending literally billions of spam emails, billions in the early 2010s, 2011s. So one person on the internet was so tired of receiving these spam emails from Alan Rolski that this internet detective got online and used the powers of the interwebs to find Alan Rolski's physical mailing address. This person then proceeded to find every conceivable piece of junk mail that they could and signed Alan Rolski up for it right? Getting a taste of his own medicine. At the height of this uh, debacle, they said that Alan Rolski was receiving hundreds of pounds of junk mail a day. I would say he got his just desserts, right? But, but what struck me is not just the hundreds of pounds of junk mail that he got, but you guys, somebody spent days of their life signing him up for junk mail, right? That, that is, if you're a well-adjusted adult, that's not healthy, Right? They, they scoured everything into sign. Like they spent hours and hours and days and days of their life signing him up to receive physical junk mail. That's not healthy. That's obsessive. And yet, for many of us, you've maybe had a moment where somebody's done something that offended you and you found yourself responding to it in an obsessive way. Right? Maybe there's your boss did something and you've got to have this hard conversation and heading into that conflicted conversation, you lose sleep over it and you're thinking about it all the time. Maybe you lose a little bit of your appetite. And sometimes around this thing of conflict, a hard conversation, we find ourselves obsessing, maybe in a similar way as that person who spent hours and hours and days of their life signing Alan Rolski up for junk mail. And so the challenge with this thing we call conflict is that conflict in our lives can be a consuming thing. Right? It, it, it can sort of take our time, our energy. It can uh, raise our anxiety levels, our stress level, which robs us of energy, which robs us of peace. So the key question I want to push into today is how can we navigate conflict in a constructive way? Conflict isn't bad. In, in fact, I think conflict can be a part of actually promoting unity. It can create greater clarity. It can create uh, more health in the relationships that we're a part of. And so conflict, if it's done well, if it's done constructively, can actually be healthy. So as we push into this, let's define what conflict is. Rich Viotis, in his book, Good, Beautiful, and Kind, he says that conflict is a serious disagreement regarding a meaningful situation. A serious disagreement regarding a meaningful situation. Something that matters, something that's important to us. When we don't see eye to eye with someone, when we have a, a moment where somebody says something or does something that hurts or wounds or offends us, how do we respond in the middle of that is really important. Now, the, the challenging thing about conflict too is that conflict is inevitable. I think for some of us, and we'll talk about this more in a second, we would love to avoid it at all costs. We would love to just find this happy place where we could not have any conflict. I don't think such a place exists, right? Conflict is a result of, of living in a broken world. The first three parts of this series, we talked about how we live in a world that is broken by sin. We live in a world in which spiritual forces are at work. We live in a world where we've had moments of, of wounding and trauma and brokenness. And so the challenge is, a conflict is a result of living in that broken world. James 4 says it this way. Let me read James 4, 1 and 2. 
James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. And he talks about these, these sort of conflicted moments, these fights, these quarrels that are a result of, of the desires at war within us. We have sinful desires. We have competing desires with other people. And as a result, there are communities and relationships where people are torn apart by conflict. So how do we push into it, right? Now, a couple caveats before we get to the meat of it is number one, church, I, I think we should start with this base level foundation that as believers, we should be difficult to offend. And sadly, I feel like, I feel like sometimes we're the easiest people to offend. I think sometimes, especially in our culture, people are looking for offense and, and we're quick to jump to uh, assumptions and we're quick to find an offense in what people said. But in Proverbs 19.11, the writer of Proverbs says this, Proverbs 19.11, he says this, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory, catch this, to overlook an offense. So there's times and places where it's okay to say, you know what, this is something I can overlook. We don't need to jump to every offense to have a conflict at every corner. There are some things that it's okay to say, this I don't need to be offended by. It is to one's glory, to one's honor, to be able to overlook an offense. Now, on the other side of that, there are things we can't and things we shouldn't overlook. There's things we can't overlook. Somebody says something, does something that hurts, wounds, or offends, and we can't let it go. When we can't let it go, we have to be committed to having the conflicted conversation. There are some things we shouldn't let go. When you, someone you love is, is rejecting God's truth and le- living their life in a way that is going off the rails and you can see the destructive pattern, you should not avoid that. You should have the confrontive conversation to guide them back into God's truth. So the things we can't or shouldn't overlook, we need to be willing to address. Let, let me draw our attention to Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4... Paul writes this part of the letter to the church at Ephesus to encourage them to live in unity and maturity in the body of Christ. Listen to Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. In other words, he's saying be faithful to live a life as one's called into the gospel. Verse 2. He says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Look at verse three. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Notice that Paul doesn't just say, make an effort to keep the unity. No, he says, make every effort. Paul says, this is important. This is something he's urging the believers to. In other words, the unity of the body of Christ is something that the body should spend time and energy cultivating and curating. We are called to be a people who live and dwell in unity. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that conflict and confrontation are parts of cultivating unity. Likewise, in verse 31, in this same passage of scripture, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness and rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Now, when Paul says get rid of them, I don't think Paul means I'm going to pretend I'm not angry. That's not possible. Paul is saying as a body, live and dwell in such a a unified way that you are cultivating unity, you are working through your anger, you are not brawling and filled with rage, but you are moving towards resolution. So how do we do that? Now, I, I, often I think there are three responses to conflict that we have in general. There's probably more than this, but I'm going to break it down into three broad categories. On the one side, we have avoidance, right? For some of us, we like to avoid conflict. And the problem with avoiding conflict is it often results in what I'm calling anger internalized. 
We want to avoid it. And often avoiding looks like either ignoring, I'm going to pretend that this doesn't bother me or appeasing. I'm going to try to tiptoe around this person so I don't offend them. I just want them to kind of be happy with me. I don't want any friction. I don't, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. And so we ignore and appease all for the sake of avoiding conflict. And I think there's several reasons we avoid. Sometimes we avoid out of fear. We don't like the emotions that rise with conflict. I don't like that. Sometimes it's, it's the discomfort, right? I, I, it just makes me uncomfortable to have that hard moment where your heart rate kind of picks up and you get that knot in your stomach. You're like, ah, can I just not have that uncomfortable moment? For others of us though, I think we avoid conflict because we'd rather sit in our self-righteous indignation. For some of us, we'd rather feel right than be reconciled. We don't want the other person to speak truth. I, I'm offended. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm wounded. I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to avoid it because I want to sit in my anger and feel justified in my displeasure towards somebody else. And so we avoid it. Now, the challenging thing about avoiding, Paul says this in Ephesians 4.26, where we avoid conflict, we create space for spiritual opposition. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4.26. Paul says it this way. In your anger, do not sin. Now, notice that Paul doesn't say that sin or the anger is sin. But he says, when you're angry, don't let angry lead you to sin. He says, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Catch this. And don't give the devil a foothold. Where we let unresolved anger fester, we actually give the enemy a place in which to operate in our lives. I, I can say this personally for me. I've never had a place where I've been really angry that it's led me towards good godly things when I just let it fester. Maybe you feel the same way, right? Actually, actually, James says this, anger doesn't lead towards the righteous life that God desires for his people, right? And so for some of us, we're letting it fester because we want to avoid conflict. Now, for others of us, we're not avoiders. For others of us, we go into attack mode, right? And it, where the avoider is kind of afraid of this discomfort, the person in attack mode, this is anger now externalized, right? You're, I'm angry at you. You've hurt, wounded, or offended. I am going to let you have it. And this often looks like the, the quarreling or the fighting, maybe that we picture when we think of conflict. It, it, it is emotionally explosive and we are, are not thinking about the words coming out of our mouth. We are just letting the other person have it. Now, the danger in attacking is that we often sabotage or sever relationship because we're more concerned about giving that person a piece of our mind than we are about reconciliation. I, church, I want to call us not to avoiding, not to attacking, but a place of addressing. We, we can't overlook it. I don't think we should attack in aggressiveness and anger. I do think that we should address conflict. And addressing conflict looks like a conversation in pursuit of peace and reconciliation. And, and, and peace, right? Peace is not just the absence of fighting. No, peace is... Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it's this word shalom. It means the abiding wholeness of God. We experience peace when we're living in right and reconciled relationships with one another, right? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not calling us to a false place of overlooking things. Instead, I'm calling us to a place of addressing areas of conflict, of having the hard conversations and doing what Paul says in Ephesians 4, that we are making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, let me, let me put up this chart that kind of uh, demonstrates how conflict develops. When you, when you think about conflict, there, there's kind of two axes here, right? There's time and there's tension. So if something happens, somebody does something or forgets something or, or somebody uh, mistreats you in a way that, that causes this conflicted moment. Now what happens is over time, there's this rising tension. 
And, and th- this is like, I'll describe it like you feel the vibe in the room change. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you, it, maybe you have this experience. Occasionally, right? I'll have conflict with my spouse before I leave for work, which for me is the church. So then I come to church and then I feel guilty, right? That I had conflict. And then, and then I go home at the end of the day and sometimes I step into it and it's like, ooh, that tension that I thought would go away today is still there. Right? It didn't just magically disappear. So there's this rising tension, and as it's unaddressed, right, there's this sort of role dilemma, role con- like, who's responsible? Did I do something to offend her? Did she do something? Like, there's this, who's at fault here? And when we don't address it yet, this tension continues to build until it reaches this confrontation point. Now, this confrontation point, that's what we like to avoid. When I talk about avoiding conflict, we like to avoid that confrontation moment. When it's done well and healthy, I think there's actually an adjustment. There's behavior changes. There's resolution. And you you actually feel that that tension dissipate. Now, what happens, though, if you're someone who's an avoider, right, you don't don't want this moment of confrontation. If you're going to avoid that, like when the tension is like here, you kind of start to appease. You kind of start to ignore. The tension doesn't go away, but it drops like to this level. The problem is the next offense, you don't start from here, you start from here in the tension and it rises up to a new place. The longer we avoid it, the higher the tension rises. Now, if you're an attack person, you just go right here, right? You're just, you are ready and you are going to let the person have it. The problem is you're not processed. You don't know what you're thinking. You don't know what you're feeling. Sometimes if you're an attack person, you don't even know what you're mad about. You're just angry. There's a perceived injustice, even if I haven't perceived it yet. So the question is, how how do we do that confrontation place? How do we do that well? How do we have that conversation? So here's what I want to suggest to you. The call of the Christ follower in conflict is this. To be a people who are agents of God's peace, truth, and reconciliation through a calm, assertive presence rooted in truth and grace. Let me say that again. The call of the Christ following conflict is to be a people rooted who are agents of God's peace, truth, and reconciliation through a calm, assertive presence rooted in truth and grace. So here's the question. How do we actually do that, right? Like, this sounds great. What does it practically look like? So I want to give us kind of two phases to this process of addressing conflict and of having that confrontation, that moment of conversation where it's hard, where it's difficult. Let's talk about how do we actually push into that? So here's what I want to suggest to you. That we are called to first, before we have the conversation, phase one is this, is your heart right and ready? Before you have the conversation, we need to do the work to make sure our hearts are right and ready. So let me draw our attention again back to Ephesians chapter four, one to three. And this is the Apostle Paul writing, right? And he says this. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you. Now, a couple things I want to uh, draw our attention to. Paul opens the letter by telling the believers that he's an apostle. In other words, Paul says, I have the positional authority to write to you this letter. But in Ephesians 4, Paul doesn't say, I'm an apostle. He doesn't reclaim that authority. He goes, no, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. What Paul is saying is, I have the credibility of someone who has pursued Jesus to the point of being willing to suffer for it. So Paul goes, as someone who's put their life on the line, their faith on the line, who's willing to suffer for this, as a prisoner, he says, I urge you. That, that, that word is important. Paul's not saying, can you please? He's going, no. As someone who suffered for the faith, church, I urge you. I eagerly desire for this for you. He says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Step into the gospel. Notice what he says. He says, be humble, be gentle, be patient, and bearing with one another in love. 
when we talk about having hearts that are right and ready, I want to suggest with church, what we want to do is we want to jump on Google and find seven steps to conflict resolution. Those tools are helpful. But listen, if we are not a transformed people, tools and tactics will not help you. When our heart is transformed and we step into the, the conflict with the right heart trajectory of people who are humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love, that changes the whole context of the conversation. But can I be honest? When I'm mad, I don't want to be patient in love. Do you? And notice, Paul doesn't just say, be uh, humble and gentle. He, he says, he uses this little word, be completely, be completely humble, be completely gentle, be completely patient. I don't like that. Those are the farthest things from my mind in the middle of conflict. And yet Paul says, this is the kind of disposition. If we are going to dwell in unity, if we're going to make every effort to keep and to cultivate the unity, this is the kind of people we should be. So what would it look like, church, before that conversation with your spouse, before that conversation with your kids, before that conversation with your boss, before that conversation with your neighbor who shovels his snow onto your side of the thing, what would it look like if we said, Lord, in this conversation, help me to be humble. Help me to respond, Lord, with gentleness. Help me to bear with him in, or her in love. That changes the trajectory of the conversation. Now, the other part of this, of having a heart that's right and ready is this. We need to take the time to understand what we're feeling, right? Notice again what Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26. Paul says, in your anger, do not sin and do not let the sun go down while you're angry. Again, Paul doesn't say that anger is a sin, but he says, make sure that your anger doesn't lead you to sin, and here's what I want to suggest to us. Emotions are a gauge and not a guide. When you are angry, anger tells us that something that's important to me has been trespassed. Anger says to me, something is broken. Something is off. Anger is a gauge that something is broken. The challenge is we take anger and let anger guide the conversation. Anger is not to guide the conversation. What guides the conversation is being completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The truth guides the conversation. Anger is a gauge that something is broken. Do you see the difference? So we have to do the work. Is your heart right and ready? Are you going into with that disposition of humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love? And do you have a sense of where your heart is at and what you're feeling? So I, I want to give you this simple tool. Uh, we'll put this on the screen. Five sort of reflective, prayerful questions that help us orient our heart in the midst of conflict. And number one is this question, what happened? And I sometimes, I have this moment where I walk away from a conversation and then I'm, I'm sitting in the car or something. I go, ah, something was off about that. And then as I think about it, it's like, yeah, the, the thing that they said or the way that they said it, like that was hurtful. So take some, like process what happened. And, and as you process that, what happened in that scenario, ask yourself this question, what am I feeling? Do I feel angry? Do I feel hurt? Do I feel wounded? Am I frustrated? Is it just a disagreement over how something, what, what, what are you feeling in the middle of it? Third is, uh, what's the story that I'm telling myself? Right? If you're anything like me, I walk away from a situation like that and I go, they responded shortly with me because they don't like me or value me. Like we have this narrative, this story that we're writing that may or may not be true, but it's one that we've come to believe. Now, on the other side of that, we need to ask this question, what does the gospel say? What does the word of God teach us? And then out of being rooted in truth, what is the counter-instinctual response that is needed? 
this is a tool that Rich Viotas uh, talked about and one that I found incredibly helpful. Because when I come back to what does the gospel say and what counterinstinctual response is needed, uh, where I want to respond out of anger, I hear Paul in Ephesians saying, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. The gospel says, Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another just as in Christ God forgave you. That is not my instinct in conflict. So as we enter into conflict, phase one, is your heart right and ready? Are you starting with the right trajectory, humble, gentle, patient, Are you starting with this awareness of what's happening in the interior parts of your life? Now, the second question is this. How do we actually have the conversation? How how do we push that confrontation that was at the top of that chart? How do we have that moment? Let's push into that. How do we have that conversation? I want to do that with a case study of biblical conflict. Because when you read the New Testament, actually, this is fascinating. If you look at Most of the New Testament letters, they are written to address conflict in the local church. If conflict did not exist in the New Testament church, most of the New Testament wouldn't exist. Right? And I find that fascinating. So, so much of what's written in the New Testament is to address conflict. And you you see it even in the life and experience of Jesus. And what I think is helpful about this is sometimes I think if I was a better leader, if I was a better pastor, if I was a better father, if I was a better husband, I wouldn't have conflict. But what we see in the short story I'm going to share with you in a moment is Jesus, who's the greatest leader who ever lived, he experienced conflict because the people he's leading are broken too. Now I throw my own brokenness in the mix and you can see the conflict is inevitable, right? So let's walk through this. How do we have the conflicted conversations? Mark chapter 10, 35 to 45. It says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came for him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That is a bold question. Right? Notice they don't tell him what they're going to ask. It's kind of like a, a surprise bait and switch. Jesus, whatever we say next, we just want you to do. Wow, that is, I don't even know what to think about that. Not, not great. Verse 36, Jesus says, well, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And Jesus tells them, he goes, you don't know what you're asking. He says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Verse 39, we can, they answered. So here's what they're thinking. They're thinking that Jesus is going to set up a physical kingdom on earth. They think he's going to overthrow Rome and he's going to step into power. And James and John are like, Jesus, when you are in power, we want to be at your left and right. We want positions of authority. We want positions of power. We want you to give us this. And when Jesus talks about the cup and the baptism, he says, listen, I'm going to suffer. There are going to be hard things. Are you prepared to step into this? They don't understand what Jesus is saying. So they go, oh yeah, we can. Oh, sure. We're good. They have no idea what they're saying, right? So Jesus says to them, you will drink the cup I drink. You're going to suffer for your faith. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And then it says this. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, you see the dynamic that's forming. James and John want positions of honor. The 10, they hear about this, and now they are angry with the two. So Jesus has this place of division in his own group of disciples. The 10 are indignant with the two. Now, the text doesn't say this, but part of me wonders if the 10 are indignant because James and John beat him to the punch. They're like, ah, I wanted the position of honor. James, John, oh, 
I don't know that, but that's my hunch, right? As I read the rest of the Gospels, you kind of see this theme play out that they have a misunderstanding of what the Gospel of the Kingdom of God looks like. So you've got the ten that are indignant with the two. Watch how Jesus responds to this. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Notice verse 42, Jesus called them together. Church, if we're going to have the conversation, the first step is we have to have the conversation face to face. Right? There's division. What does Jesus do? He calls them together. He brings them in. He says, guys, let's huddle up. We need to have a conversation. Jesus doesn't avoid it. He doesn't attack it in anger. He calls them together in a place of community. And it's public because they're publicly, the 10 are angry with the two. So he calls them together to have the conversation. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, there's another fascinating example of this. Galatians 2, 11, we'll pop this up on the screen for you. It says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Peter, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong, or as this translation says, he clearly stood condemned. Now, what was happening there is is, uh, Peter withdrew from eating with Gentile believers and caused division in the church. And so Paul, seeing the challenge of this division in the church, Paul steps up and he goes, I opposed Peter to his face. Right? Notice that he has the conversation face to face. And church, this is Peter and Paul, two of the greatest, most influential apostles in the New Testament. They have conflict. But notice how Paul addresses it. He has a face to face conversation with Peter. And we don't like face to face. We spend our time, like, we like to text. You guys, can I tell you how much damage I've seen through uh, conflict trying to be worked out over text? And, and then we play the interpretation game. They put a period instead of an exclamation point. What do you think that means? They said, oh, wow, comma. You think that's frustration? It's like, I don't, you might as well be Egyptian hieroglyphics. I have no, you can't read emotion through text, right? Or we go on social media and, and we want to publicly call out people on social media. I don't think that's appropriate. I think the biblical model is face-to-face conversation. And what happens, church, too, when you are confronted with the humanity of another person, it's a lot harder to attack them. It's much easier to attack somebody hidden behind a phone, hidden behind a keyboard, where you are not face-to-face with the reality that they are another broken human too. Now, one one more example of this. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10, there's this other example of conflict involving Jesus. Luke 10, 38, maybe you're familiar with this story. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, to Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So here's Martha. She feels the pressure of Jesus and the disciples being in her home. She wants to be a hospitable host. She's in the kitchen, right? And maybe she's making dinner or lunch. I don't know. And, And she's working and she's like, ah, Mary's out there sitting at Jesus' feet. I have all the preparations by myself and she gets worked up. But notice what Martha does. She doesn't have a conversation with Mary. She goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you tell her to come help me. But notice how Jesus responds. Verse 41, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one. And Mary has chosen what is better and it won't be taken from her. Notice church, 
Martha refuses to have a conversation face-to-face with Mary. She complains to Jesus. Notice that Jesus doesn't entertain the conversation. He speaks correction back into it. Here's what I want to challenge us with, church. Some of us are entertaining conversations that we should be correcting. We would rather complain about someone else with each other rather than having the conversation face-to-face. I think that's wrong. How do we push in? Number one, have a conversation face-to-face. Number two, be ready to calmly receive. When you think about having a conflict moment, we often think about what we're going to say. James chapter one, verse 19 and 20, though, I think reframes this a little bit for us. The apostle James says this, chapter one, 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone, right? He doesn't say some people. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. How would it change a conflict if as I step into the conversation, I go, I want to be quick to listen. We are a culture that is so quick to speak. I want to tell you that I'm angry. I want to tell you that I'm frustrated. And listen, when you're going to have a conversation, you need to offer what you're hurt by. Yes. But then we need to be a people who are quick to listen, who are slow to speak and slow to become angry. And what I think is so powerful about this passage is it is upside down from our culture. Our culture is quick to anger, quick to speak, and slow, if ever, to listen. But how, how does this change the conversation? Conflict is healthiest when it reestablishes two-way communication of both giving and receiving. And so when you step into conflict, don't only be concerned with what you are going to offer, but be willing to receive, slow to listen, slow to angry, slow to speak. So as we have the conversation, face-to-face, ready to calmly receive, and number three, guard the tongue. Guard the tongue. It's too, too many times when we're quick to anger, quick to speak, we're also quick to say things that we regret. In Ephesians 4.29, that same passage where Paul says, keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. At the end of that passage, 4.29, he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. What if in the middle of conflict, we said, Jesus, the only thing I want to come out of my mouth are things that are going to be helpful to build this other person up. And even in conflict, that can be an edifying moment. Maybe somebody has a blind spot in a way that they are hurting and wounding others that they're unaware of. The conflict moment can be an opportunity for them to uh, learn and grow up into maturity if we're willing to have this kind of conversation. Too many times, though, we want to offer angry, hurtful words rather than words that build up. Conflict is not an excuse to say whatever we want, but it's an opportunity to practice taming and guarding the tongue. So as we have the conversation face-to-face, be ready to receive, guard the tongue. Number four, speak the truth in love. Conflict means we're going to say some hard things. We're going to say some challenging things, but we need to be committed to speaking truth in conjunction with love. Too many times we want to major on the truth, not out of concern for the flourishing and well-being of the other, but because we want to say hard things to the other person. But in Ephesians 4.15, Paul encourages us to speak the truth with love. When we speak truth with love, we are concerned about the flourishing and the well-being of the other person. As we have the conversation, not only speak the truth in love, but focus on root issues and right priorities. What is fundamentally broken? What's most important in this moment? Let me draw your attention back again to Mark chapter 10. As Jesus addresses this place of conflict with the disciples, notice what he says to them. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and he said, 
You know that those who are regarded as Gentile, rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them and their high officials exercised authority. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must be the servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. What this tells me is that the root issue of what's broken for the disciples is not just that they want positions of power, it's that they misunderstand the very essence of what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is telling the disciples, you think I came to be served? You think I came to have power and authority? He goes, no, no, no. I came to be the chief servant of all. And in the middle of this, Jesus could be frustrated. Why can't you guys just get along? But the root issue, the thing that's deeply broken is their fundamental misunderstanding about the gospel. And church, in the middle of healthy conflict, we have to get to the root priority of what's actually the problem, what's actually broken. And in the middle of that conflicted conversation, ask what's most important to reestablish? How do we guide this relationship back to a place rightly rooted in truth? So again, as we have a conflicted conversation, have it face to face, be ready to calmly receive, guard the tongue, speak the truth in love, focus on root issues and right priorities, and finally, seek to restore the relationship. This is the essence of healthy conflict. Do you want to restore and reconcile the relationship? I think as Christ followers, particularly in the body of Christ, we are called to a place of reconciliation, restoration, and forgiveness. Let me call your attention once more to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. As Paul closes out this section of his letter, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Man, there again, how would being kind and compassionate, how would that transform how we do conflict? Kind and compassionate. Too often in conflict, I'm so focused on how broken and wounded I am by what that other person did that I never stopped to think maybe they're reacting and their wounding of me was out of a place of their own brokenness. And maybe if I'm kind and compassionate, I leave room not only to to let the person know they hurt me, but to check in and see how their heart and soul is doing. Let me finish. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Catch this. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, to get to that point, there's all sorts of other questions. How do we work through forgiveness? What does this look like? Well, we can say forgive one another, but there's a whole process. There's a whole challenge there. And that is next week, church. So I want to encourage you to engage because forgiveness is the other half of this conversation. We can talk about how to have the confrontation moment, but we also have to talk about how do we work through this process of offering forgiveness. So as you have this conflicted conversation, let me leave you with these things. Have it face to face, be ready to calmly receive, guard the tongue, speak the truth in love, focus on root issues, what's really broken, and right priorities, guiding in truth, and seek to restore relationship. And the question a little bit is, how how do we adopt that posture? I want to leave us with Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 7 says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Now, when you are still and waiting patiently before the Lord, this is a disposition of prayer, of being willing, Lord, I want to receive from you. Listen to what the psalmist says. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. I don't know, church, sometimes I'm so bad about fretting, right? Somebody uh, says something or does something that that feels like opposed or or a conflicted moment and I fret about it. How about you? I think about it, I'm a little, the psalmist says, don't fret when they carry out their wicked schemes. Verse eight, refrain from anger, turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. What the psalmist is calling us to is in those places where you're worked up and you're fretting about what somebody said or did something to you. Don't fret about it, release it in prayer, wait calmly and patiently before the Lord. Church, if we're gonna do conflict well, we need to rise into conflict out of a place of resting in prayer. 
Too many times we rise into conflict out of a place of uh, stress and anxiety and, and, and challenge rather than rising out of prayer. What would it look like? How would it change our conflict if before the conversation I did what the psalmist says and said, Lord, I'm going to wait patiently before you, calmly and quietly, and I will rise into conflict out of a place of resting in prayer with you, not fretting, letting it go, not fretting, but trusting the Lord in the middle of it. Let me pray for us, church. Father, I pray that we would truly be agents of your peace and of your reconciliation. Father, in those moments of conflict, it's so hard to set aside the things that we feel so self-righteous and so self-justified in. And sometimes, Lord, we want to be angry and want to inflict that anger on another person. But I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who rise into conflict out of a place of resting in prayer and rooted in relationship and rooted in truth in you. That we, Lord, might be agents of reconciliation, that we might be agents of truth and peace, that we might be the people who make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Father, not avoiding, not attacking, but addressing with the truth and the hope and the redemption of Jesus Christ. And Lord, too, in those places where we need to forgive, help us, Lord, in your grace to forgive as you, Lord, have forgiven us. And may we walk in the truth of your word in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.